you guys. We are taking a break from our study in uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, to look at the Psalms or some Psalms this summer. We won't look at all of them, but um, at least in my time here, we've never really ventured much into the book of Psalms. So that's what we're doing this summer. Um, And we looked at Psalm 1 last week, and I realized that I could have given you the impression uh, from looking at Psalm 1 that righteousness is found in meditating on God's law. Uh, In other words, that if you'll just read the Bible enough and delight in it enough, then God will be happy with you and you will be saved. I could have given you that impression last week, and so I wanted to come back and clarify that that is not true. That no amount of Bible reading on your part, Bible meditating on your part, even delighting in it, will ever be enough. Because you can't delight in God's word enough. That's, that's, that's the nature of uh, being fallen. It's the nature of our sin. It is not by our Bible reading that we are saved. Uh, we are saved by the righteousness of Jesus alone. Uh, and so Fred uh, shared, us, uh, w- shared that with us through, our, uh, through Romans 3. But I want you to look real quick uh, at Psalm 1 on the last verse where it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When you read that verse... What you should say is, oh no, I'm a whole lot more wicked than I am righteous. What in the world am I supposed to do? And that's where Romans 3 comes in. By works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be declared right, righteous in his sight. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift. You cannot earn your way. You must be given salvation as a gift in Jesus. Uh, And so I wanted to make sure that was clear before we moved on to Psalm 2. Uh, So that's where we're going to be today. So if you would, uh, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Psalm 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab the the copy of God's Word that should be in the the rack in one of the chairs in front of you. If you're uh, looking for it, it should be on page 448. Uh, Now, we started doing something new last week, at least it's new to us, uh, but if you've got that passage in front of you, I want you to keep it open in front of you, and I want you to stand as we read God's Word out of reverence for God's Word. So let's stand as God's Word is read. This is actually a practice that comes to us from the Old Testament. Whenever they read uh, from God's law, they, uh, they stood in honor of it. So let's, um, as I read God's Word from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Have a seat. And let me pray. Lord, would you take this poem, written so many, many, many years ago, and would you open it up to us? Would you help us to understand it and to apply it so that we would leave here a changed and transformed people? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week, and I want to say this again, that when you come to the book of Psalms, also called the Psalter, um, that Psalms 1 and 2 are like uh, two pillars of a majestic gateway that, that bring you into the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 really have the themes that will be explored through the rest of all of the Psalms. And so uh, Psalm 1, right, right, both of these Psalms tell us how to enjoy the blessed life. Uh, how to be happy in the deepest sense of that word. And the reason we know that's true and the reason we know that they go together is that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed and goes on to describe where that blessing comes from. And then Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed and tells us where that blessing comes from. And so they're like two doorposts of a majestic gate that that beckon us into the Psalms. Psalm 1 says that the blessed person is the one who meditates on God's law. Not his law, his commandments, or just his commandments, but actually the word there is Torah. The first five books of the Bible, uh, broadly speaking, it means God's instruction. Now I want you to notice this. Uh, There are five books of Moses, and there are five books in the Psalms. And so it's as if the psalmist is saying that this too, these prayers and poems that are written in the book of Psalms are are connected to, they're paralleled with, they're just as much Torah as those first five books. There's a parallel there. We're made to come into the Psalms and meditate on them and find uh, God's blessing and enjoy God's blessing. And so then, right, that's the first pillar of the happy life, to spend your life meditating on God's word. Now we're going to look at the second pillar of the happy life. Uh, And we see in the last sentence uh, of Psalm 212 where he says, Happy are all who take refuge in him. We're going to look at what that means today. Uh, And here's how I would summarize it. True happiness is found when we submit to God's Son. True happiness is found when we submit to God's Son. And there are three things I think the psalmist wants us to do. First, admit our pride and rebellion. Two, uh, see the Lord's anointed, uh, who is the anointed one that the Lord has provided. And then three, we want to submit Uh, Bow the knee to the anointed one. Submit to the Son and find refuge. Let's look at that that first point, admitting our pride and rebellion. The psalm opens with the nations raging and plotting 
with kings and rulers setting themselves in opposition and conspiring. It's mutiny. It's revolt. It's turmoil and fuming and kicking and fighting. I read these verses and I, I think of a, uh, a horse at a rodeo, uh, a bucking horse. He's bridled, he's saddled, and there's a cowboy on his back, but he sure ain't happy about it, right? That's, that's what you're seeing here. That horse is, is doing everything he can to get that rider off his back. And that's what the nation's are doing. It's what the peoples are doing. They're, they're kicking and they're bucking. And, and who is it that they're bucking against? It says against the Lord. Now, some of you know this already, but when you see in the Old Testament that word Lord in all capital letters, that's uh, a translation for God's name. It's the name that he gave Moses uh, in Exodus chapter 3. It's a name that means I am or I am that I am. And here's the interesting thing about this name. It's this name. It's God's covenant name. It's the name he gives to his people by which they know he is their God and we are his people. Right. So it's a name of great significance. But we don't know how to translate it. We don't know how to say it exactly. Because the Hebrews, when they began uh, putting the scripture more on paper and they put vowel points in so that it could be read and understood, the name was so holy, they regarded the name as so holy that they didn't say it. When they would get to a passage wherever it was said, like in Psalm 2, they wouldn't say the name. Instead, they would say the word Adonai, which means Lord. It's just a common word for Lord or Master, and that's the name that, that uh, we have here. Okay, uh, That's the title, rather, that we have here. Uh, older generations of Christians, as we moved from Latin and for, for, rather from Greek and Latin into English, uh, older generations of Christians would say Jehovah. And we know now that that's not exactly correct, uh, and I'm not going to go into the long reason why that is. Uh, and so now uh, we think it's Yahweh, right? But it's, and it's just four characters, Y-H-W-H. But we don't know what the vowels are, so we don't quite know how to say it. Right? And so it's, it's okay to say the Lord, but as long as you see that name, as you see that, that name and you understand that this is God being personal with his people. It says the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed. This is another special word. It's the word we often translate from Hebrew as Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ. So Jesus' Jesus's last name is not Christ, right? Christ is actually a title. It means to be the anointed one, and it comes from the Old Testament, right? It means the chosen king. Uh, God's anointed one is the one that he has chosen to be king. So here in Psalm 2, this refers to David and to his sons who would follow him. And what do these nations think? Of the Lord and of his anointed, they want to cast off all bonds. Right? They, their, their picture of the Lord and his anointed and his rule over their lives is one of harsh slavery, demanding control, shackles and, and ropes and chains. They want, to, they want to burst those bonds and get rid of them. Is that not a perfect picture of our own hearts 
and how we respond to God naturally in our sinfulness. And if you don't think that's true, kids, you know, your parents have, have learned to cover some of these things up, but, but kids, when your parents tell you not to do something, what's your first response? Cast off the chains. I'm going to do it. Right? We have, we have this heart of rebellion. We have this heart of pride that says, I'm going to do it my way. That's what the psalmist is saying here. It's ironic that this is so-called pride month. And, and we see, again, in our, in our culture, this desire to look at God's design, his goodness, and to say, cast it off. Break the chains. Freedom is found outside of God. There's no way that it could be found inside of his boundaries. There's no way it could be found inside. Joy and freedom must be found outside of God's rule and control. That's what we say as a, as a culture. But that's what we say in here, too. We may look and see it very easily in our culture, but do you see it in your own heart? Maybe it's not any of the big sins, the vile sins that you would list. Maybe it's the respectable sins that we're happy to overlook because they're the sins we cherish most closely. But we have a heart of rebellion just like these nations, just like these kings. We look at the Lord and we say, you won't control me, you tyrant. And so what is Yahweh's answer to rebellion? He provides a king. He reveals his anointed one. Look at verse 4. He says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. And this is not a happy laugh. This is, this is the almighty God. This is the laughter and the derision of the one who sits in the heavens against whom all plotting is useless. All scheming and rebellion will ultimately be vain. That no matter how hard we kick, we will not thwart him. He's the one who sits in the heavens. You can rebel, but it won't end very well. And what he does is he sets his king on his throne in Zion. Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. It's not a very large mountain, but it's God's holy hill. It's where his temple was built, his dwelling place, at least in the Old Testament, among his people. And so by placing his king in Zion, Yahweh is linking his rule to the rule of the Messiah. The anointed one, in this case, to King David and his descendants. The Lord rules through David and his sons. In one sense, they're one and the same. To rebel against one is to rebel against the other. To welcome one is to welcome the other. The Lord's rule and the rule of the Messiah, his chosen king, are one and the same. And we see in verse 7, right now, the... Uh, now the Messiah, the anointed one, speaks. He says, I will tell of the decree, the royal pronouncement. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, 
My English translation capitalizes son, but, but don't rush to Jesus yet. Okay? Remember that this was written uh, a long time before Jesus was ever born. David, when, if David is the one who wrote this, we don't know, uh, he didn't know Jesus, at least not yet. And so what is going on here is this is, this is the king, David, speaking uh, when he talks about uh, sonship. This was, this was actually common language in the ancient Near East where David lived and where David reigned. Uh, whenever you had a great king, he, he would make a, an announcement, or excuse me, he would make a covenant. He would bind himself to a lesser king, and he would say, here is, here is the territory I'm giving you to rule. I am giving you uh, my authority and power. You will be to me a son, and I will be to you like a father. That was the language, the covenant language that, uh, that's going on right here. And we see it in Second Samuel chapter 7. When he makes a covenant with David and with David's sons, 2 Samuel seven twelve, he says, When your days are fulfilled, this is the Lord speaking to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's the Lord talking, at least in that point, at that point, about Solomon, David's son, who would build the temple, and all of the sons who would follow in David's line after that. And so this is the decree. All you other kings can rage all you want. This is my chosen king. This is the anointed one. This is whom I choose. And what is it that Yahweh promises to his anointed one? He promises him an inheritance. Now, we often give our property, uh, if we have property, to our children as their inheritance. I, I kind of imagine, right, a, an aged father with his adult son standing at the top of the hill and saying, like, all of this belongs to you, right? From the, from the stream over here to the line of trees over there, all this will be yours, But in this case, what is it that the Lord promises to his son, to his anointed one? The nations. The peoples all the way to the end of the earth. Why? Because it all belongs to him. The Lord is not just the God of Israel. He was the God of Egypt and the God of Babylon. He's the God of the United States. And he's the God of Russia. And he's the God of China. And he's the God of Mexico. And he's the God of Saudi Arabia. He's the God of Morocco. Right? He is the Lord of it all. All of the nations belong to him. His reign stretches to the ends of the earth. And he gives it all to his son. He gives it all to his anointed one. And I can't help but think right here of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go and make followers of all the nations. What's Jesus saying? The Father has entrusted me. He has given me my inheritance. I possess the nations all the way to the end of the earth, and now they need to hear. They need to hear that I am the king. 
They need to hear that I am the anointed one. They need to trust me and follow me. That's what Psalm 2 means as we move forward into Jesus. That Jesus is great David's greater son. That the promise made to David, yes, was fulfilled in Solomon and in some of the other kings uh, from David's line. And yet some of them were not very good kings. Some of them were downright terrible kings. And so, yes, God's promise here was fulfilled in short term to David and his sons. But ultimately, it was fulfilled in Jesus himself, who is great David's greater son, the true king, the true anointed one. What all is said here is true of Jesus, which makes us stumble a little bit when we get to verse 9. He says, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I don't know about you, but when I think of Jesus, it's hard for me to imagine a rod of iron breaking things, right? What is, how, how, does, how does this apply? Well, the rod, we're probably talking about an iron scepter here. The rod was used by shepherds, both to guide and direct sheep, but also to defend them. Right? A good king not only guides his people, but he also defends them. And that's how the, the scepter became the image of authority and rule, used to guide, but also to protect and to punish enemies where necessary. And that's exactly what this image means here. What this is saying is that the, the anointed one, the Messiah, his power cannot be thwarted. Rival kings, if they continue to stand against him, will be broken like clay pots. It will be that easy. So when you think of the nations and when you think of the, the power of the nations, how great right, the military might uh, and the, the wealth and influence and all of those things. We think, man, who, who can stand against all that wealth and power and influence? King Jesus. He has the scepter of iron. He has the rule and the authority. And as we're going to see in a minute, he will use that authority to break those who will not acknowledge him. So that's the Lord's anointed one. What is the right response to this chosen king, to this son? Uh, We see the invitation there in verse 10. Be wise, kings. Be warned, rulers. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Be wise. Serve the Lord with awe, with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Now, is that... Those two words can go together, right? There are some scholars who think like rejoice and trembling. Those don't make sense. And so this, this word must mean something else. No, right? Under the Lord, right? We come to him in fear because he is the Lord of the earth. We, we come to him in awe. And yet we can also come with rejoicing. Rejoicing and trembling, they can go together. You can be awe, in awe of someone and rejoice in them at the same time. And that's what the, the invitation here is, to, to submit to the Son. Right, it says, kiss the son. Uh, to kiss a king, right, was to, to bow the knee, was to show them honor, to show true loyalty and devotion. 
Some question uh, whether the word son here should be son or, or be pure, as in pure devotion. But really the meaning is the same. What's being said is stop your rebellion. Lay your weapons down. Stop your plotting and your scheming and submit to God's chosen king. When? Right now. Right now, before his wrath is kindled. The Bible tells us in other places that the Lord is slow to anger. That he is patient and long-suffering. But there will come a time when the offer of peace is taken off the table. And the king returns. Happy are those who take refuge in him. That's the last word of Psalm 2. And it's the word of grace that we need to hear. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Isn't it interesting that when we're in rebellion, when we rebel against the Lord, we see him as hard. We see him as tortuous. We see him as demanding and harsh. Kids, haven't you thought that about your parents sometimes? Their rules, demanding, harsh. But really... The offer is not one of harsh slavery. It's one of refuge and joy. That's what Jesus offers. And so that's the choice before you and me. Refuge or rebellion. If you choose rebellion, then you need to hear this warning. It's about Jesus. It comes from Revelation chapter 19 where it's a a picture of the last day. John writes this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the word of God. It's talking about Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a warning. And we need to hear it. That if we remain in rebellion, there will come a day when the Lord returns on his white horse. And that day will be judgment. And it will not be good for those who are outside of Christ. But for those who choose refuge, hear his voice from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here's invitation. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. How can Jesus offer that? 
how, how can Jesus offer rebellious sinners rest? How can the one who carries the scepter of iron offer salvation to people like me and you who have rebelled against him? Because on the cross, Jesus allows that scepter of iron to fall on him. He allows himself to be broken and God's fury to be poured out on him. He absorbs that so that everyone who comes to him can find refuge in him. We finish with these words from theologian Derek Kidner. What fear and pride interpreted as bondage is in fact security and blessing. And there is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. Do you trust him? That's an invitation. Let me pray.